Please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Hebrews 5, 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we thank you for it. We pray that you'll help us to understand it and grant us by your Holy Spirit the power to live according to what we have just read. Would you remind us of our need for you through your holy word and remind us of our need to mature in the things of God. May we, Lord, be accustomed to the word of righteousness and may we have the ability to discern between good and evil for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. In our passage in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, the apostle turns his attention to admonish and rebuke his readers. He has already in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, encouraged them by showing them that what they had under Aaron and the old system of the Mosaic law, it was there for a place and it was there for a reason. But what we now have in Christ is much better than what Aaron represented or what Aaron did. What he represented, what Aaron represented was better than what he actually did under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic Law. There he encourages us to, to follow Christ and to focus, focus our attention only on Christ. That's what he does in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Encouraging us to be focused and fixed on the person of Christ because he's the only place, the only means of our salvation and that he has indeed accomplished everything that was needed for us to be saved from our sins. Jesus Christ did so. Now when he did so, when he explained here about Christ and what Christ accomplished, he mentioned a couple of times the name of a certain priest and man an obscure figure to many people named Melchizedek. He says in verse 6 that he is that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now when he mentions Melchizedek, he has more things to say about this man, this person in Genesis chapter 14, 18 to 20. He has something more to say about him, which he will pick up on this in chapter 7. So a couple of chapters, he has to take a break from that because he wants to refocus their attention on something else. And then he will come back and pick up with Melchizedek. But why is it, after mentioning this Melchizedek, that he has to take a break from it? He explains in our passage, 11 to 14, he explains why it's necessary. Verse 11. Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
He has much to say about Melchizedek, not because of Melchizedek in and of himself, but because of Melchizedek's relationship to Christ. Who Melchizedek was in relationship to what Jesus came to do when he came into this world. What did Jesus come into the world to accomplish, and how does that relate to this person, Melchizedek? That's why he says, concerning him, we have much to say. And if we begin in Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, all that Melchizedek represented and did back in the time of Abraham is explained in those chapters later in this letter. So he does have much to say, but he will take a break from it. He'll take a break from it because he needs to first warn and admonish the people. And why? Why did they need, after being encouraged, why did they now need to be warned and admonished? Because, verse 11, and it is hard to explain. It's hard for me to tell you about Melchizedek and Christ, the relationship of the two, because it's hard to explain because there's something wrong in the hearers. There's something wrong in the readers. Not that there's something wrong with Melchizedek or Christ. Not that there's something wrong with the Word of God. The problem does not reside in God. The problem resides in the people. It's, that's why it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. They became dull of hearing. They became insensitive. Oh, well, that doesn't really matter. Or, and then they would pursue something else. Or we don't really need to know about that. It's not important for me. I'm just, after all, I'm a layman. I'm not a pastor or a priest, so I don't need to know about that, and I'm not going to pursue it. So I, I'm going to occupy my time and my thoughts, my, my seeing and my hearing, everything else that I do with something else, I don't need to know. Or they may have said, well, I already know everything about that. There's nothing more that you can say. And there's nothing more that I can uh, meditate on. I can't reflect on that anymore. I've already figured that out and that's behind me. So I don't need to know. And don't mention it again. Don't remind me of it because now you're boring me. People are dull of hearing for various reasons. He does not say it specifically for what reason. He just accuses them of being dull of hearing. They're insensitive. And then he explains how he knows they are dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, if New Testament scholarship is correct, this letter was written about A.D. 60. A.D. 60. And the apostle, the, the time of the apostles and the time of Christ was A.D. 30. That means about 30 years have passed. And he is writing to people in the Roman Empire who would have heard the word of God from the time of the apostles and the day of Pentecost when the word of God spread throughout the Roman Empire. Because many of the Jews came to visit Jerusalem. They saw the miraculous signs that took place by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And then they went back to their homelands. Even though they were Jews, they went back to their homelands and then spread the gospel to wherever they went. So this gospel was in various parts of the Roman Empire for about 30 years. 30 years. That would be if New Testament scholarship is correct. But let's just say that it had only been five years or 10 years, or 15 years, 
Let's just say for the sake of argument, it had just been a handful of years and not 30 years. He still says here, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, though by this time you ought to be teachers, and he says to them that you need milk again or only milk again. Now think about it. The analogy he uses is of infants, right? Babies who only need milk are within their first year. Only milk, right? So it could be that he's actually telling them, you have been a believer for just about a year and you still need us to remind you of things that you should have learned when you first became a believer, even within one year. He might even be accusing them of being just a believer for one year and still you don't know what you need to know. You're not doing what you need to do. You're not believing what you need to believe. And you're not able to comprehend and actually to explain to other people what you already know within one year or two years or five years, let alone 30 years. You're not able to comprehend and you're not able to articulate to others what you know. Because he says here, you ought to be teachers by this time. You ought to be teachers. He does not necessarily mean those who are able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. He doesn't necessarily mean just those people that God has called to be preachers and teachers and evangelists. He's not talking about just them, although there is a role for them. And if after a while they have not raised up anybody, then that's a problem too. If after a while they have not raised up anybody in their own congregation who is able to teach, who is knowledgeable enough to fulfill that role, five years down the road, ten years down the road, if nobody is there to do that, to take a, a position of authority as an elder in the church, to be one of the teachers of the church, if that is not happening, then there's something wrong for that specific role. But that's not the only role of a teacher. In the Bible, others are also supposed to teach. Are not parents supposed to teach? Well, actually, even before that, are not husbands supposed to teach their wives? Just like it is in Genesis 2, 15 to 17? In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, Eve was not yet created. And in verses 16 and 17, God gives the command, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Adam was the only one who heard that word of God, and he was responsible to convey that word of God, to teach that word of God to his wife Eve, and then the two of them were expected to obey whatever, to believe and obey whatever God said. And he was supposed, supposed to be the leader of the two. And when the serpent, Satan, came into the garden, he should have intervened, he should have spoken up, he should have put a stop to it, he should not have let his wife keep on speaking to the serpent and be deceived and fall into sin, and then lead him into sin, because it says he was with her. That is the first paradigm, that's the first occurrence of when a man did not do what he was supposed to do in his own family, in his own marriage. That was the first case. That's the way it's supposed to be. The man should hear the word of God. He should be reflecting and meditating on the word of God, learning the word of God, and then talking about it with his wife. That's the way it should be. Now, not that the wife can never ask her husband, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 34 to 36, 
that if the woman or the wife has a question, let her ask her husband at home. Let him be the source and the authority for that learning and, and growing. That should happen. Now, not only in the marriage should there be teaching, there should be teaching from parents to children. From parents to children, they should be taught the Word of God. The book of Proverbs has many, many verses on the children learning from the parents, but also Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. When your parents are teaching you, children, things about the things of God, and they are living and acting in accordance with the word of God, then that should deserve your obedience. You should listen to what they say. Now, this assumes that the parents are teaching. The parents are supposed to teach. And if the parents don't teach, how will the children learn? If the parents aren't reading the Bible to their children, if the parents aren't talking about the Bible to their children, if the parents are not memorizing the Bible with their children, how are the children going to know? How will they know? They cannot depend on 30 to 45 minutes every Sunday morning. They can't depend on that. We need more than that. Are you going to eat food just once a week for the rest of your life? No. You need to eat food all day long, three times a day. You need to have regular intake of regular food physical food, and in the same way, we need regular intake of spiritual food. How much more for spiritual food? Because the regular food helps us to survive another day. But the spiritual food enables us to survive and prosper and flourish for all eternity. All eternity. So the parents should teach their children the Word of God. There should be a regular intake, regular discussion, regular reading and discussion and memorization of the Word of God with one's children. In fact, when God first announced the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, 4, He said what it means in relationship to the children. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Is the word of God prominent in the house? It should be in the house of believers. It should be. That's the sense in which we ought to be teachers as well. There's another way in which we ought to be teachers. We who believe the gospel, are we not to comprehend the gospel enough to be able to explain the gospel to another person? If we believe the gospel, how is it that we cannot explain the gospel? We should be able to explain it. However we say it, and there are many ways to explain it. If we believe it, whatever we believe, we should be able to say to somebody else, an unbeliever, somebody who has never heard, or somebody who has heard incorrectly the true gospel. If they have incorrectly heard about the gospel, we should be able to teach them, to show them, to explain to them. 
This comes because we truly believe it and we have conviction that it's important for the people around us to know it. That's why we open our mouth. That's why we say in the Bible, if the Bible teaches this or the Bible teaches that, if you don't know where to find it, begin learning where to find it. And then you can show your friends where it is in the Bible. This is how it happens. We ought to be teachers in that sense too. There is a teaching role, in other words, for every single believer, every single Christian, in one manner or another, he is called to be a teacher of this truth, whatever the context and whatever the people are. And that's what he's saying to them. They have not been able to do this. So he rebukes them. He admonishes them for that. And instead of that, instead of being able to teach others, he says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need somebody to explain to you again. Even though you've been professing this faith for 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 years, you've been professing this faith, yet there are many simple things. He says the elementary principles the elementary foundational doctrines and teachings of the Bible, these basic truths of the Bible, you need somebody to teach you again because you have not figured it out, you have not learned it, and you're unable to explain it to anybody else. Not that we cannot grow deeper and deeper. He's not talking about that. Deeper in our understanding of the truths of the Bible. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the inability to articulate or to teach the basic truths of the Bible to anybody. What happened that that occurs? These elementary principles, what are they? Well, in this context, he actually does enumerate a few of them. In chapter 6, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he mentions a few of them. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He calls these the elementary teaching about the Christ. He's saying we should know things about these doctrines to press on to maturity so that we don't need somebody to re-explain all these things to us again from the foundational level. We should not need anybody to explain these things. So, naturally, the question is, how many of us could explain these teachings of the Bible which are called basic, which are called elementary, elementary principles? How many of us are able to explain these fundamental truths to somebody else, whether to a child or whether to a friend? or our husband to wife, who is able to do this? How many among us can do this? He's saying we should be able to do this. If you've been in the faith long enough, you should be able to do this. He calls these the elementary principles, back to chapter 5, 5.12, elementary principles of the oracles of God. Don't miss that point. These are elementary principles of God's words, God's oracles, God's messages. Oracles of God. Now, many of us could easily tell you who won the World Series in the last 10 years. Many of us could say, who, who won the last golf championship? 
Or who is the best golfer? Many of us could tell you about the best movie this last year, or the, the top ten movies, or who won this award and that award in Hollywood. Many of us could say, many of us could say, what the best novel is, the best fictional novel is. What's the hottest on the, in the top in the, in the rank, best-selling books? Many of us could say, well, I have read this one, this 500-page novel, I have read it, and I can tell you everything about it. This is what happens, does it not? We know about sports, we know about movies, we know about other books, but how much do we know about the oracles of God, the Almighty God, our Creator, who sent His one and only Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and who gives us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to open our eyes. This Almighty God, we don't know what He says? We know what He says and she says out there in the world? We're talking about fickle and feeble and filthy people? We're talking about them? We know what they say, but we don't know what God's Word says? We should. He says, we ought to know the elementary principles of the oracles of God. It is only this Word of God that has the power to save. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. But the way we behave, we behave as though we're ashamed of this word of God because we don't know anything about it. Although I gave to them 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Hosea 8, 12, he says, the people, the people of God who should know better, who should know this word of God, they don't know the oracles of God. Even though God gave them plenty to know, they don't know. They don't know the word of God. They know everything else but they don't know what's in the Bible because they have not uh, contemplated and have conviction that this Word of God is really and truly, ultimately, what they need. They need this. They need this for their peace. They need this for their anxieties. They need this for their wisdom, day-to-day -day wisdom. They need this for their own soul, for their spiritual maturity. They need this Word of God for all of these reasons. They need the Word of God. We must come to that conviction that we need this Word of God. We're not talking about mere men. We're not talking about speculation. We're not talking about religious fiction. We're not talking about religious zealots and fanatics who concocted and conspired to write this Bible. We are talking about the oracles of God. God our Creator and God our Redeemer gave us this Word. So let us know what this Word says. And put away and jettison, throw into our fireplaces all of the garbage that consume our minds or into the trash heap. Away with it. As he says here, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Why is it? Why is it that even though you have known the gospel for 10, 20, 30 years, you need somebody to feed you milk and you cannot tolerate you, you despise, you vomit out, you spit out whenever solid food is put in your mouth. Why is it that you have a distaste for it? Why is it that you would rather drink milk as though you were just one month old? Why is it? The problem is 
in the person. The problem is not in God. The problem is not in the Word of God because everybody knows that naturally and physically the infants need to overcome their desire for milk and milk only for the sake of solid food. How else will the infant grow? How else will the infant have strength? How else will the infant become an adult, a mature adult? We're talking about maturity, verse 14. The mature. What are the mature, physically speaking, going to eat? They do not eat. When they are 10 years old, when they're 20 years old, they do not eat milk or drink milk only. That's not what happens, and it should not happen. And if it does happen, then everybody is scandalized, and rightfully so. Why is it that a 20-year-old is only drinking milk? He cannot survive that way, and neither can we survive that way. We must not have such a disdain or distaste for the Word of God, the solid Word of God, that we despise it and reject it. We'll speak in a moment why they reject it. Here, he just asserts that they do reject it. They want milk, the sweet milk, but they don't want the solid food. They want the sweet milk, but they don't want the solid food. Then 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. An infant, this is the problem. He says, if we partake only of milk, we're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Right there, it shows we are infants. We are little babies. And we're not mature. Now, why is it that they would have a distaste for the solid food? Why? Because it's a word of righteousness. Word of righteousness. Is it not the case that if righteousness were preached, not wickedness, but righteousness, holiness, godliness, piety, growth, maturity, if this were preached and emphasized, that a church of a thousand might end up with 52 people in it. And of a church of a hundred might have just six or seven in it. That's why this happens, because they don't want solid food. They don't want anything serious. They don't want anything that's not sweet to them. Sweet to them in their natural condition. They don't want that. They don't want it because the word of righteousness says, oh, I go to the casino and the preacher just said something against the casino. Therefore, I can't go to that church because he's going to make me feel bad. Or on the other side, or on the personal side, um, I'm committing adultery right now. I'm committing adultery and I need to go to a church that won't condemn me because I'm committing adultery. But say, yeah, love manifests itself in different ways and God loves you anyways, so it's okay. Or whatever else it might be. They don't want to go to a church that will actually say from the Bible that this or that behavior is sinful. They don't want to hear that because they love their sin. They don't love the Savior, they love their sin. And he's saying that whenever the word of righteousness is preached, people don't want that kind of solid food. They don't want it. They turn away from it. They disdain it. They just reject it. They vomit it out of their mouth. They get it a little bit, they hear it a little bit, and the moment they hear it, they walk away from it. When actually, it's for their good. It's for their benefit. 
Isn't that what Romans 1, 16 to 17 said? For in it, in it, the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is in the gospel. So if we believe the gospel, we desire to live a different way. We desire to pursue the things of God. We desire to know God. We desire to love God and to love the people of God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We desire to do things that are constructive for both ourselves and others, not destructive to ourselves and others. We start to pursue those things that are good, positive, godly, that benefit not only ourselves, but everyone around us. That's why he said in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all. Because normally, we just try to get along with whomever we can get, get along with and manipulate people and friends and, and co-workers and whoever, whatever so that we can ascend and we can have our comfort zones. That's what we want. But we don't try to make peace with all. We don't try to share the gospel with all. We don't care for others' souls. We just want to use others for our benefit. But he's saying this word of righteousness, now we have a completely different mindset. We should not be that way. Not love wickedness, but love righteousness. Then he says, why? And what benefit there is. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food is not for newborns. It is for the mature. But the mature need to partake it. They need to consume it. They need to have it. And buy that solid food. Solid food, people who desire solid food, they are the mature. The mature means those that are pursuing holiness, those who are pursuing righteousness, those who want to grow in their faith. They want to know God more. It's not enough for them to deal with petty matters. They've overcome petty matters, and they're seeking day by day to help other people to overcome them. And they want something solid. To, and then in the meantime, to help others, because they've overcome, now they're ready to help others. If one was a drunkard, and he, and he has repented and believed in the gospel, then he, now he is wanting to help other people who are continuing in their drunkenness. If he used to commit fornication or adultery, now he stops doing that, and now he wants to help other people overcome adultery and fornication. Gambling, sportsaholism, whatever it is. Whatever it is, he used to do that, be that way, but now he's not like that anymore. He's beginning to change and he's helping others do the same. That's why he says solid food is for the mature. If there are people who reject any of these things, wanting to live in righteousness, they're not mature. They are immature. They are infants. And then he explains further what this is about. He says, the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained. He uses these athletic terms, practice and training, practice and training. Which athlete will win the prize the first time he attempts something? Which athlete will win the prize by just going into a competition in the first time without any practice or with little practice? No, they don't do that. Instead, what do they do? They work hard every day. They watch what they eat. They watch what they drink. They watch what they do with their bodies every day. 
They take full control of their person, their physical person, and they are determined to win that prize. And they are determined to win that prize through much effort, through much practice, through much training. They do so. They don't win it easily. Now, if athletes do that with hard work, and they do that for something that's perishable, and at the most, a piece of gold, and even gold will not last forever. It will be burned up when Christ returns because the heavens and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. Now, if they do that for the most, a piece of gold and at the least, a piece of paper, a sub certificate, if we do that for those reasons so that we can puff up our pride, so that we can be esteemed in the presence of other people for whatever reasons we do so, if we do it for those things, he's saying here, we should be doing this, practicing and training our senses, our spiritual senses, for better things, he says. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained. Do you think that the moment you say that you are a believer, the moment you confess faith in Christ, that immediately you've got the whole Christian life figured out? You've already overcome everything? And you can help anybody and everybody without knowing anything in the Bible? That automatically you are the champion of all things Christian? The moment you say you are a believer? Absolutely not. No, those people, they are clueless. They are fanatical and they are ignorant. They, they don't realize that they have to have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Their senses trained. If someone were to say to you, coexist, give peace a chance. God helps those who help themselves. And any number uh, of adages and, and axioms that are bandied about in our society, if they were to say that to you and say, that is biblical, or that is in the Bible, that is in Scripture, would you be able to say and to, to discern immediately that that's not in Scripture? Would you be able to say that those slogans are not found in the Bible? Neither the words are found in the Bible, nor the concepts are found in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Would you be able to have your senses trained to immediately spot that that's not true? Of course, we should live in peace and harmony. The Bible talks about that. But the question is how? How to live in peace and harmony? What is ultimate peace and harmony? It's not the way the world says it. This, this is what he means. You have to have senses trained, our spiritual senses trained to know what is true and what is false. Further, to discern good and evil. Having our senses trained to discern. Discernment, discernment, being able to make a distinction, to distinguish, to make a judgment, to make some kind of evaluation, some kind of a way to analyze the situation in order to come to the right conclusion about what you're seeing and hearing. That's what discernment is. Are you able to do so when it comes to the things of God? Do you have that ability to see something and hear something and to know that that's wrong or that's going to lead in a path of destruction? Are you able to do so? He says we ought to be able to do so. 
We are all called to discern, make a judgment, make an evaluation. We're all called to do so. And even those who promote the fact that we should not be judged, they say, do not, they say you're not supposed to judge anybody. Do not judge. They like to quote that verse out of context from Matthew chapter 7. But what that verse is saying is not what that verse uh, is being implied to say by the people of the world and even the people in the church. That verse does not mean it. And let's see what it actually does mean. Matthew 7, verse 1. This, this passage is so commonly cited that it has become more known to be in the Bible than other verses that should be understood to be in the Bible. Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge. And that, that's where they leave it. Doesn't the Bible say do not judge? And they just leave it at that. And it says further, lest or else you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Verse, verses 5 and 6 hit the point home. Right there. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That means in verse 1, when Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged yourselves, you cannot go and tell somebody who's committing adultery that's wrong and sinful if you're committing adultery yourself. You can't talk, tell somebody to stop getting drunk when you get drunk yourself. First, he says, overcome your own sin. Acknowledge and repent of your own sins, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So don't be a hypocrite, is his point about judgment. Because then in verse 6, he does expect us to judge. He says, do not Give, you know, cast your pearls before swine and don't give what is holy to dogs. Which means he's commanding us to know who the dogs and the hogs are so we not give them our precious things. Don't give the dogs. So we have to identify certain people as dogs and hogs. Which makes it incumbent upon us to judge them, to judge them in some way, evaluate who they are and what they're saying and doing. And then act accordingly. And besides, those who use this and say we should not discern or ha have any judgment, they are the biggest judges of all. Because they love to condemn us and silence us immediately the moment we say something that is in objection to what they're promoting. They do that all the time. So everyone dis discerns and everyone judges. The real question is, on what basis? And are we doing it in a biblical way? And finally... He says, we need to discern good and evil. Good and evil. The Bible presents good and evil. Light and darkness. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The good tree and the bad tree. The good fruit and the rotten fruit. The Bible does this all the time. There are these two categories of people. The righteous and the wicked. 
the, the wise and the foolish. There's these two categories of people. We're in one group or the other. This is the way the Bible describes us. We're either redeemed or we are unredeemed. We are saved or we are unsaved. Who is your father? Is your father God or is your father the devil? Are you a part of the sheep or are you a part of the goats? The Bible does this everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. It's everywhere. And even the ultimate destiny of man is either heaven or hell forever and ever. The Bible does this everywhere. Because these are the only two categories. This shows that there is no intermediate category of values and practices. There is no intermediate, middle ground, gray area in the Bible. The Bible does not look at life that way. The Bible says that in terms of spiritual things, in terms of ethical things, it's either right or wrong. It's either good or evil. And we have to be able to discern whenever we encounter whatever we encounter, whether it is good or evil. That is the goal. So that what Adam and Eve failed to do in the Garden of Eden, we not fail to do day by day. What did Adam and Eve fail to do? They failed to discern between good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and they lost everything. They were told not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did, and they committed evil and plunged us all into misery. And that's what we have to deal with every day. Every day, everything we see, everything we hear, every encounter we have with people, every thought we have, it's either a matter of good or evil. Therefore, let's discern and let's embrace, hold fast to the good and jettison and eschew all evil, get rid of all evil in our life. Therefore, I consider right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Whatever God says is true, whatever contradicts God is a false way. That's the way we have to look at it and embrace what is good. It's going to be for our good and for God's glory. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.